Welcome to our bonus episode for this week. We've got a very lovely interview with a very special lady, don't we, Michael? Yes, we do. We have Jan McVerry on the podcast today. We are very pleased to welcome her onto the show. How long did that take me? Ten seconds? Couldn't resist it, sorry. But yeah, I'm so, so really, really chuffed to be able to get her onto the show because it was only a few weeks ago that we saw her picking up an award at the British Soap Awards, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. She she got the Tony Warren Award. The Tony Warren Award. Very special award for people who work behind the scenes on soaps and have achieved great things in their career. And it was presented to her by Connor McIntyre, who played Pat Phelan, and he did a very nice speech about all of her achievements. Yes, so she's been she's a storyliner at Coronation Street and a, and a writer for a good while as well. She started in the 90s and still going strong today. So um, I just could not resist the opportunity to invite her onto the podcast after we had a, an, a yes. chance meeting with her after the British Soap Awards. We we mobbed her like fans, didn't we? Well, we yes. are fans. Yeah, exactly. We, we are like fans. We're like, we came up, well, she was standing, <laughs> waiting for her cab, very... Um, also peacefully, and yes. then we sort of unleashed ourselves it's upon saying, her. Are you Jan? No, I can't remember. I just said, I said, Jan, hi. <laughs> You're so show busy, Michael. As if, she, as if she should know who I was. She knows who I am now, anyway. And so well, that's like, our. What we do is one by one, we corner everybody who works in Coronation Street. And yeah, we're going to get into our friends. Every single one of you. Or at least they're polite to us when they <laughs> see us. <laughs> yeah, and she was absolutely lovely. Oh, to she was speak so to, wonderful uh, at, the, at the time and yesterday when I interviewed her as well. Yes. So I hope everyone's looking forward to hearing this because um, we chat for a good what fifteen a great, minutes. So. Wonderful person to talk to. Oh, it's a real, real and privilege. Such, I hope people are going to love this. Of knowledge about Coronation Street and yeah. the process, yeah. and a really great writer too. Think, that helps. <laughs> yeah. Now we do have a video version of this interview yeah. on YouTube as well. So if you're listening to this and you're fancy seeing, you know, what we look like, then um, head over to our YouTube channel and you can watch it there as well. But if not, um, just plough on through with this, really, because we're going to stop talking now, aren't we? We are, yeah. Well, you are, anyway. I'm going yeah, to talk in the on. past mm. to Jan McVerry. So here she is. Today on the podcast, I'm really privileged to be joined by a bit of a Corrie writing legend. We've got her to thank for the creation of characters like Pat Phelan, who's a bit of a podcast favourite, and she's been responsible for some much-loved Corrie scripts, including the 50th and 60th anniversary episodes, the Underworld minibus crash, Ken's tumble down the stairs... She's recently picked up the Tony Warren Award at the British Soap Awards, and she's here with me now to talk about her 30 years behind the scenes on the cobbles. It's Jan McVerry. Jan, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, 30 years. That sounds oh, horrendous. It's been a long time, hasn't it? It's been a yeah, yeah, very, very been long a, time. A legend. Yeah. By the way, I just need to say for anybody looking at this, talking <laughs> of tumbles down the stairs, I took a tumble this week while I was out running bash my lip up and I've still got this big graze on my face so I'm really sorry you're having to look at it but anyway oh, just trying to my office instead so um yeah <laughs> how are you I'm doing looking, you okay? apart from that how are you I'm great I'm still um still pinching myself after the awards which was yeah, absolutely how did you feel when you heard that you've been chosen to be the recipient of it well, it's very unusual how it happened because I think ordinarily they don't warn people. They just invite them and then surprise them on the night. <laughs> but it was a bit more complicated in my uh, in my circumstances because they rang me up and said, oh, do you want to come? Because we normally like divvy out the awards. So someone will go to BAFTA, someone will go to NTAs, stuff like that. 
so lovely Cleo, our, um, our producer's PA, rang up and said, oh, do you want to go to the Soap Awards? And I was like, oh, I'm in Barcelona. And I'd booked it for my husband's significant birthday. <laughs> I said, I'll ask somebody else. And she was like, oh, okay. And then she rang back the day after and went, um, yeah, D do you want to rethink that? And then in the end, they, they had to tell me because they said, you know, for the programme makers, they wanted a physical body there on the stage. You don't want, sure. you know, someone else going up to receive the award. And for me, I said on the night, I, I did know Tony. I was very lucky in that respect. And it just means so much to me. So there's no way that I could miss it. But then I had to have a very difficult conversation with my husband to say, I'm going to be leaving our holiday early. Uh, then there was more negotiations and we then decided to both leave our holiday early. So I was really lucky because on the night I was able to take my um, husband and one of my daughters. Lovely. So it made it really, really special, especially for my daughter because she's only 23. Mm. She's a midwife. She doesn't get to go to anything like glamorous like that. So it was it was just a real thrill. And yeah. there was a lovely, I mean, I think you picked up on it as well, didn't you? There was a lovely atmosphere. I think there really the, was. I think, but the, the, I think people who work on the soaps, especially for people like yourselves who are so invested in the show and are kind of doing a lot of our job for us in terms of promoting the word. And, you know, I, I, it does feel like a, a two way thing. So that, I thought it was really lovely how people really wanted to make a beeline for you and Gemma and make a point of speaking to you and stuff. Cause exactly. Thank you. you know, it's, it's, it's important and it's, it's nice. I think maybe it's also a soap thing because we're all so used to working under quite difficult circumstances, long hours. It's very much a team sport. And so I think it attracts people who are very collaborative and very generous by nature, really. Yeah, yeah. Now you spoke in your acceptance speech about there being so few women on the writing team when you first uh, started at Corrie and being told not to talk for your first three months. So was that something that you kind of accepted as just the way things were? were or did you like actively try to prove that a women's voice was something that should be heard on a soap writing team? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even so much as, well, I mean, I, I thought it was extraordinary that there was only one woman writer, the very brilliant Adele Rose, who sadly passed away yeah, not long ago. Not long ago. Um, and she was really wonderful, but I just, I, I just couldn't believe it, you know, that that was the case. And also what you've got to bear in mind is that I'd come from Brookside Mm. And and Brookside was a whole other ball game. I mean, you know, it wasn't an equally split team, but there were a lot more women around the team. And, you know, it was a very, it was a much more democratic show at that time. I mean, now Corrie is brilliantly democratic because we've had a series of really wonderful producers who've put that in place uh, and are very flexible and open to opinions, other people's opinions. But at the time... Corrie felt much more traditional in its outlook. You know, there was a top table where the real heavy hitter writers sat. And yet yeah, they were all brilliant. I mean, absolutely brilliant. Your John Stevensons, your Ken Blakesons, you know, people like that who are absolute like legends. Yeah. Um, but you, a, a friend of mine, came to work on the writing team and made the mistake of sitting in the wrong chair and was asking you because she was in somebody else's chair. Now, that would never have happened on Brookside, you know, and, uh, you know, on Brookie, when the tea ladies came in with the toast at 11 o'clock, 
they would be chipping in, telling Phil Redmond what they thought of the latest storylines, and Phil would hear them out, you know, because he thought, yeah. you know, it was valuable input from the viewers. So it just felt a very different setup to me. And also, I mean, I did joke about, you know, don't tell a scouse that. It just when you've grown up being told that your opinion is valid, I also thought it was really important that a lot of the writers were older on Corey, mm. and I was coming in as someone in my early 20s, a massive fan of the show and a massive fan of their writing. But I did think, well, you need a younger perspective. Surely it's going to make the show better if you're going to listen to people like me who are from a working-class background, you know, living in a terraced house with not much money, uh, a bit like the characters that that you're writing about. So isn't it valuable to have that extra input? That's what I couldn't understand. So when we went into our first story conference and they'd said, don't speak, and then a natural... I mean, obviously, in story conferences, the golden rule is don't speak unless you've got something worth saying. Mm. So don't speak just for the sake of being heard around the table. But a point came up in a story and I just thought, well, what if we did this? So I spoke and it was a bit of a tumbleweed moment. <laughs> but, you know, we then used that story point that we then used that story point and we went on to get story from it. It was about Steve McDonald being in a crash in the car. Yeah. And I said, what if they swapped seats? And, you know, it ended up being a bit of an insurance scam. But we ended up getting quite a bit of story about it. But one of the writers did say, that's a very Liverpool story. Because <laughs> it was about scamming an insurance company, you know, which I was really offended about at the time. And but you know, that's that's how it works. I think I I just think, and certainly, you know, I know you've spoken to Joe Parkinson quite a bit. He's a friend of the podcast, isn't he? A mm -hmm. brilliant uh, story producer. Um, you know, his input is as valuable as mine. You know, his life experience is as valuable as mine. And that's uh, why I think, you know, we work really well on Corrie now because what everyone's got to say is is just really valuable. It all goes into the pot. I mean, I, I've won BAFTAs for my scripts on Coronation Street, but the one the one that I've, I actually value most, which is the one where Hayley Cropper made her decision to you know take end her own life came from an absolutely brilliant uh um scene by scene document written by cardio donald who's not on the show anymore he was off writing you know his own stuff but um you know you've got to acknowledge that it's all part of a collaborative process and that story came from a big story team it wasn't all my work you know it's all so we none of us would be as good at our jobs without everybody else that's on that's on the team yeah of course so you, you spoke about um offering kind of the voice of youth to coronation street in the early 90s <laughs> which was really <laughs> was really important because that's when they were making those big changes bringing in you know the the barns and the mcdonald's and that a few years previously but did you also find that as a woman you were able to um help out with the writing for female characters not that cory ever had a problem with that but do, do you think you're able to give a, a valuable input there as well yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, as it's gone on, we got our Sally Wainwrights, we got, you know, we got big hitters around the writing team. I mean, of course, at that stage, I was still only a storyline writer, but, yeah. you know, as we as we got more representation around the table, I think it definitely has helped. And, 
Um, I mean, the, the thing about writing for soaps is you have to have a lot of strings to your bow. So you've got to you've got to be able to do the comedy. You've got to be able to do the big drama. You've got to be able to write as well for the female as the male characters and any other characters that come, yeah. you know, trans characters or whatever else, uh, you know, comes along. Um, and we've always been re really lucky with our with our male writers for that. But just just to have a woman's input to say, well, I think a woman might see it from this point of view or just to tip something on its head or ask, you know, to look at it through a slightly different lens, mm. then, yeah, I think that has been really valuable. Yeah. Did you have any um, favourite characters to, to write for later or to, you know, create stories for early on? Um, well, I feel really, really lucky that, I mean, going back to the absolute classic yeah. characters, that I did get a chance, and this was when she came back very briefly, I did get a chance to write for Beth. Wow. Uh, and she only came back very briefly because I think Julie had not factored in how much the show had changed and yeah. the whole pacing of the show and the amount of lines to be learned and everything. And it was a real shock to the system. So it was quite a short-lived return. But that character, having grown up as a fan of the show, and being able to write for her because it's that voice is so distinctive it almost writes itself and actually the same for Mike Baldwin I found the same yeah. it, it, you've it's his voice is in the DNA of the show and it just flows out you you never have to think oh is that right it's it's almost like you've kind of like lit a flame and, and it just it just takes off really yeah you knew exactly um, what those characters would yeah, say for sure. absolutely yeah. absolutely they were totally you know themselves and you could never go wrong really mm. I mean my, one of my proudest moments that was very early on as a writer as a script writer when I came back because I went away and did Emmerdale and then came back but uh, we did some brilliant stories with Emily Bishop and Spider yes. and um I did my degree in English and Spanish. So my one of my proudest moments was to have Emily Bishop up a tree saying, no passeran. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that was a bit of an in-joke and I never, ever thought, you know, an in-joke for my, you know, anti-fascist friends from my, uh, like, Spanish degree course. In <laughs> Spanish War. So obscure. I thought they're obviously going to take that out. And, you know, I've enjoyed myself and I've written that draft, but that'll never make it through. But it actually made it through on screen because, of course, Emily had a really radical history. You know, she... Um, you know she'd she'd been a protester herself back in you know back in the day and what mm. was this a quiet sort of radical in her own right so yeah it just really fitted yeah were there lots of lines that before you started writing on Corey you you used to think oh if I get a chance to write a script I'm gonna have this character say this and this character say this did you like have some in the bank that you put into your scripts over the years well, you you sometimes think that, and I do still on my phone, I do have a little folder for great expressions that you've heard. And, yeah. um, but but sometimes, you know, it's difficult when you do that because you're inevitably crowbarring them in and sometimes they feel crowbarred in. Mm -hmm. But there's certain characters, like now I think Sean Tully still has a brilliant turn of phrase that you wouldn't hear any other character using. Yeah. And so sometimes... I'll think, oh, that's a that's a Sean Tully line, and you'd be able to write that down. Just, you know, because it's and and Dev is another one actually, um, who I don't know. He's so uniquely Dev. You he know? really is. He's hilarious. <laughs> I love him. 
Uh, he's wonderful. We absolutely love Jimmy. And you never quite know how he's going to deliver the line, but you know it's going to be brilliant and vibrant. And, I can imagine, yeah. I can imagine. There are certain characters that you feel, oh, you can, you might be able to use that in the future, but in terms of, you know, any big speeches or anything, no, because it's entirely dependent on the context and all the scenes are different and, you know, mm. you, you never quite know what you're going to get when your storyline yeah, yeah. comes through on the email. Yeah, sure. Um, you spoke earlier about Tony Warren. So before we go on to talk more about your work as a storyliner uh, and writer, could you tell me a bit about your relationship with him? Well, we just knew, I mean, obviously we knew him as the genius that that developed Corrie in the very in in the first place and came up with that with the whole genesis of 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 the show and all of those really iconic characters. Um but also you know, he was a Manchester icon. He was not not just an icon of the gay community, um, but an icon for writers. And I think we used to, there was a while when he wasn't connected with the show. Mm. And I think it, and he was a bit in the wilderness, really. I think he'd gone off to the States and been a novelist and all of yeah, that. Yeah, I've seen, I've and then, that. And, and then come back and kind of reconnected with old friends and his old community and stuff. And I think uh, it was Carolyn Reynolds, actually, who who brought him back into the fold. And Car Carolyn was a really brilliant producer. She did she did a lot to kind of uh, really modernise the show, actually, uh, in a very um, she didn't she didn't come in kind of, you know, with their jackboots on marching all over. It was a kind of quiet evolution rather than revolution, but she really changed things. Yeah. And uh, I think one of the things was reaching out to Tony and just to see whether, because he was, he became a kind of touchstone. I think a lot of the writers didn't necessarily know it was going on, but he would have regular meetings with the producers and it was a tonal thing with him. And because he was so still so connected with, with his local Salford community, uh, you know, he knew, he knew ab about the lives of, of that community still. And he, I remember him, I remember talking to him at a party once about that, you know, the way he observed people's lives so closely and he, and he really liked the detail and the authenticity. I think that's why, you know, for instance, he liked my scripts and he liked, you know, Carmel Morgan's scripts and Jonathan Harvey's scripts because he could feel that they were coming from a, a genuine place. Mm. Um you know that that we kind of lived a bit of that life or we had empathy with those characters yeah. and he used to talk about you know those Salford women and they would they would be so beautiful and vibrant in their youth in their 20s and then sort of fade a bit more as kind of domesticity took hold and stuff but he always spoke about them with such empathy and such respect he was he never sneered at that community or felt superior to it even though he's obviously gone on and had great you know a prestigious career and and wealth and all of that yeah. he he still he still re retained that kind of connection and i i really admired that in him yeah yeah he seemed like he was a great guy wasn't he uh, sadly yeah. i never get a chance to meet him but uh, i mean what what, a, what an amazing legend he was um so go, going back to your work on coronation street then so we, we've talked about um you're we've mentioned the roles of storyliner and writer but for, for people that aren't necessarily quite in the know could you explain a bit about what what does a storyliner do that maybe a writer doesn't um 
Well, the way we work on um, a monthly cycle, so we'll start the month, and this is leaving COVID aside, but ordinarily mm. pre-COVID and hopefully in the future, we get together for nearly three days, all in a room, uh, to discuss story ideas for the for the block moving mm. forwards. So that can be sometimes, oh, I don't know, we've got a big writing team now, maybe 24 writers, so that's a lot of voices around the table. And I think we've got a, a storyline team of about six people, plus all the producers, um, plus script editors and so on. And it's about sitting around a table and, and working out, you know, chaired by Ian and Verity, how we're going to proceed with the stories. And a lot of those decisions, as well as being creative decisions, they're also very logistical you can't tell a story if your cast member's away on holiday, for instance, or you haven't got their set available in studio or, you know, or, or, or during COVID. I mean, my goodness, it was so rigid in terms of okay. people were in cohorts and they couldn't cross over into other groups. So it was very, very difficult to manage logistically. Mm. And the storyliner's job is partly logistical and partly creative. So it's their job to put the once we've once we've done our three days of storylining and worked out what the big arcs of the story are, the storyliner's job is to then go and break that down into episode bites and then structure it further mm-hmm. uh, so that we know how much of each story, you know, what we have like an A, B, C, sometimes a D and an E story strand. And, and obviously your A strand is your big hitter. And usually that's the one that you're going to tag on at there. And it's so it's the storyliner's job to work out where the stories peak and where they fade again. And then that all is written up in a document that we call Big Doc that gets sent out uh, about yeah two and a half weeks later or whatever. And then that's... Uh, um, sorry, what am I talking about? Like three weeks later yeah. and that's sent to the writers. And then we have a weekend to go away and structure that into how we're going to structure our episodes. And it's our chance to ask any questions and so on. And then um, at the next story conference, we'll we'll work all of that out and then we go away and write the episodes. So they give us the kind of blueprint for the episodes. And obviously, if once once it's in our hands, we've got full ownership to restructure or change certain characters' reactions to stuff, or if we don't think it's, you know, it's working strongly enough or or we particularly love something they've done and want to do a bit more of it we get a chance to do, to do that and then we go away and structure it and and write the 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 job is the the kind of pacing of it and the dialogue really yeah so how did so the transition it's, it's from collaborative thing how did the transition from storyliner to writer happen for you how so that i mean so that you came to write your first episode uh, well, it was quite, uh, it was difficult. I mean, I was super, super keen. Um, you know, I'd never thought that I could ever be a writer. And then once you get into storylining, you think, oh, wow, there is lots of other people like me on this table who've come up from ordinary backgrounds and aren't from like a media family or anything. This is attainable, actually. So when I was in the story office, I was just super keen, kept badgering the then producer, please let me write. And it was quite unusual in those days. In fact, it was almost unheard of for people to go straight from the storylining team onto the writing team. Yeah. Uh, And they had this thing of, no, you need to go away and find your own voice. 
And at the time I found that really frustrating. I was writing trial scripts and had real great support from very generous people like Paul Abbott, you know, the Paul Abbott, absolute genius writer. Because he'd started off as a storyline writer, I think he got it. And he was just always very, very encouraging and continues now with Shameless and all the other many, many shows he's worked on to always introduce new writers to the gene pool and never see them as competition, but always feel that, you know, it can only make you work better if you're bringing more people into it. Um, And so, you know, he was really helpful. Lovely writers like Phil Ward, you know, they were great. And they were giving me notes on the script and on my script and saying, yeah, you can do this. Keep at it. But the then producer, Sue Pritchard, was like, no, you need to go away and find your own voice. So I was fuming. (laughs) I really thought at that stage, oh, I've got things to say. I could be great on Corrie. But you either go one of two ways. You know, you've got to be very resilient in this game and you've got to dust yourself down and and use it to fuel, fuel you forward rather than be defeated by it. So I went away, I storylined on Children's Ward, where I was really lucky to work again with Paul and with the wonderful Kay Meller, who sadly also lost recently. Uh, And Russell T Davis, brilliant man who's helped me so much. Um, And, you know, I storylined and then I got my break writing on that and and also working on um, some really, really, really low budget afternoon shows that Coronation that uh, Granada were making, like Families and Revelations. Yeah. Working with amazing writers like Russell, Sally Wainwright, Kay, um, Frank Cottrell, Boyce, Paul mm. Abbott. You know, it was amazing. They were making all of these shows on that corridor in Granada for about two p an episode with Bobby <laughs> scenery and pretending to be in Australia, but they just like turn the lighting up a bit to make it look a bit brighter. But it was a brilliant, you know, um, breeding ground and you got a chance to make your make your mistakes when there weren't that many people watching in the afternoon, really. And it was great. Um, and then I was lucky enough to then go and work on Emmerdale. So I did a, a few years on the Emmerdale writing team. Mm-hmm. And that was brilliant because it was former curry producer Mervyn Watson, who was a joy to work for. A really, really lovely man. And, a, and such a lovely team. And again, Emmerdale in those days was the bridesmaid. You know, it was uh, it was on earlier. People didn't pay it too much attention. It was still shaking itself out of that slightly yeah. fuddy-duddy image. Yeah. Um, and it was, a, again, a great time. We invented the dingles. You know, it was like it. we, we were taking the show into a whole new direction. And, I mean, obviously, it's now gone on. It's such an amazing show. Yeah. And it is totally we are like head to head there is no sense for us of them being the poor relations and us being the queen beat we are absolute rivals and they win <laughs> and, you know at, well as we saw recently you know absolutely well they did well and the yeah, dinkles won an award as well didn't they win the best family award yeah they did yeah yeah i mean there's so many of them you know, know. of course <laughs> but yeah i mean yeah it's it's a brilliant show and we we don't mind so much missing out when it's Emmerdale because if they do feel like our brothers and sisters and there's a lot of crossover we share exec producers oh I need to solve a mystery when you were saying in the podcast about who was the exec producer in the sparkly jacket oh that yeah was, um Hugh Kinnear Jones who's an exec producer of both uh Coronation Street and Emmerdale I see and guess where he bought his jacket from where go on 
TK Maxx. <laughs> we were the TK Maxx kids at the awards. That's so funny. That's so funny because Jan, that's where you got your outfit for the night, wasn't that's it? Where I got my dress from. I'm very proud to tell the world. <laughs> <laughs> so when you when you submitted your first script for Corrie, do you remember what it was what it was like and how you felt about handing it in? It was terrifying. It was terrifying. Brian Park was the producer. Mm. Ruthless producer brilliant a man with a brilliant brain and a brilliant story sensibility but very cutting you know you were really you would not want to be on the wrong side of him and his very different approach to say carolyn we talked before about evolution not revolution brian was day one i'm the boss and one of the first things he did was to um sack Derek wilton I know. Which caused massive consternation on the street. And he also sacked Julian Roach, mm-hmm. uh, one of our absolute titans of the writing team. So he absolutely laid down a mark in the sand and I'm the boss. So t- on the one hand, to be kind of headhunted by Brian was a massive uh, vote of confidence. Yeah, but then I was terrified and actually... He was really disappointed in my first script. I don't oh, no. try to get on the team. And he really <laughs> enjoyed the trial, and that was why he brought me over. But my first script, I remember him saying, um, yeah, this is not as good as we thought. And I thought, oh, my God. You know, I'm must have been crushed. I'm going to get sacked here before I've even begun. And I, I'd wanted it so badly. I think that was the problem. I wanted so badly to impress him and, and make him feel it was, you know, the right signing. Mm. I think I I worried the script to death and I was trying to second guess what he wanted anyway luckily you know he gave me another few commissions and we worked it all out in the edit and then then I started to get my confidence up and my confidence came back and then then it was great it was really yeah. great but, yeah I had to look on um I had to look on Corypedia to see what your which one your first episode was and um I don't know whether this was the order that you wrote it in, but I, it was the one where um Maud Grimes hid a fish down inside the uh inside the shop did she and then and then uh was it Alpha that found it I can't remember I thought that was hilarious well what was great was there was a lot of Fred Elliott in there and he yeah. was oh a brilliant character right I mean he was classic Corrie you yeah. know classic John Stevenson Corrie yeah um, you know, real old school. And and he was another one that the voice, you knew his voice was so distinctive. Mm-hmm. So with it, yeah, it, the, the balance was trying not to turn it into a parody of the character, but just make it sound convincing. But yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so um, we talked, I, I mentioned earlier the uh, the 50th anniversary episode and the 60th you wrote as well, didn't you? So yeah. um, how, how did you feel about being chosen to write these landmark episodes? Is that really nerve wracking? It was, I mean, the 50th, honestly, when Phil Collinson rang me up and said that, I nearly fainted. I I genuinely did not think that I was going to get it. I I didn't think for a second I was going to get it. A brilliant writing team. And you think, um, oh, I don't know. There's so many other worthy candidates. And you think as well, I mean, Peter Worley was still around, still writing then and surely they're going to give it to a really safe pair of hands. Mm. But I think I think it was a combination of Phil and, and Tony also put Tony Warren also putting a word in. And I don't know, maybe I I I, I don't know. You'd have to ask Phil Collinson why, but it was just the greatest gift ever because 
as a storyline. I mean, I remember that it was very complex, obviously, because so many different storylines all peaking mm-hmm. at the absolute height. I remember writing the scene breakdown and having to colour code it because it was so complex trying to keep a grip on which storylines. And also it was like writing a stage play because you also had to factor in, we're not going to be into cutting any of this. We've got to physically give our actors time to run from one bit of the set to the other. So you've got to give them enough time to get across. So logistically, it was really tricky but it was also so exciting to do. And I think because I suppose I was a bit in between then, I'd been doing the job a long time, but I wasn't quite one of the old timers either. So I remember sitting there and thinking, I could be freaked out by this, but I'm not going to because I've been doing this job long enough. I know how to do it. I'm just going to enjoy it. And I really, really enjoyed it. And it was fascinating process because they while they were rehearsing, it became like this living organism and it would expand and contract. So you'd be getting notes every day saying, we need to cut two minutes out, it's too long. Oh, we need to add some more in here. And I remember my daughters were only quite young then having to go to one of my daughter's school sports. Oh, I know she was running for the school at somewhere. And I got this message through, you need to write some more material for Norris in the cafe. <laughs> and I had to, like, my daughter was running in a race and I knew I had to be on the sidelines going, come, yeah. on, come on, So I was like, once she'd done her race, I had to run off to the cafe and write, write this material and email it through. In fact, I didn't even have my laptop with me. I had to phone it through and dictate wow. it down the phone because it was all, but it, but it was so exciting. And then the night they were filming it, oh, it was the most nerve-wracking thing going. So were you and, there on set? Oh, we were there, well, we were there in the studio watching it. Mm. And I remember just my heart was in my mouth. Like, you sort of can enjoy it, but not really. You're just thinking, just need to get to the end, just need to get to the end. And we had an amazing producer, Tony Prescott, another scouser, who was very, very experienced at live broadcasts like had cut his teeth on doing, um, you know, stars in their eyes and stuff like that, you know, really mm. big, you know, not just drama, but he'd done a lot of like outside broadcasts and live broadcasts and stuff. Mm-hmm. So really, really calm in a crisis. And it was just brilliant at the end when we'd wrapped and we're all waiting in the studio and they, they carried him in on some of the cast members because he was beloved of the cast they carried him in on his on their shoulders and it was like press got press got. and it was just this wonderful moment where it felt like here we are all together yeah. our lovely cory family and you know we we are we are a cory family and yeah. it, it was that was the very best of it yeah, it was a, such a great episode as well. I mean, you had you know Peter in the hospital, John off in Charlotte, and one of my favourite ever Corrie death scenes, which is um, Sally and Molly there in the in the rubble. Did you have any favourite scenes that you're particularly proud of from that episode? The the scene the scene in the rubble oh, with Molly because that, awesome. that thing where she didn't take her hand. Yeah. Oh. Um. Like. I really wanted to do that. And I wasn't sure whether they'd say, oh no, Sally, at that moment, Sally wouldn't do. I wasn't sure whether they'd make me rewrite that and say, no, Sally wouldn't do. But they they went with it because they just felt that that was a moment of emotional truth. Yeah. And it was like, it was and such such amazing performance. I mean, Sally didn't. Well, you know, it was just an amazing 
team really but yeah she she was fantastic in those scenes so are there are there any particular types of episodes that you think you specialize in because the the, the 50th anniversary one had it all it had the dialogue it had the comedy it had the drama but is there anything that you particularly like to write the most um i i think i think they all they'll often give me this sort of more meaty emotional stuff i'm not i'm not a comedy writer i can i can write you know funny lines if need be mm. but i i would never class myself as a comedy writer whereas we've got people on our team that do and have written sitcoms brilliantly so jonathan harvey carmel morgan uh chris futrell simon crowther i mean i've probably missed oh damon rush damon rush yeah, very very funny mm. you know so there are there are certain people who's who are just natural comedy writers so um you know the job as a producer really is is to kind of match an episode to somebody's skill set really so although i did say before you do have to have all of those strings to your blow to your bow there will be certain things that you might areas that you might be stronger in so um uh, david isaac's another one very you know very funny really great one-liners and stuff so yeah i think i think they'll they'll try and sort of match to people and also the other thing they do which is great is they remember they try and give us as much ownership of our stories as possible so if there's storylines that you've pitched for particularly Mm. or something that you've really argued for very vehemently in conference they will often remember that and you know you'll be kind of rewarded if you like with you know but I suppose because they know that you're invested in that particular story so you'll bring you'll mm. bring some yeah. extra to it really yeah now the last episode that we saw that you did I believe was um the flashback episode with Toya and Imran yeah, and you know what? I what? still haven't watched that yet because I was away on holiday. I've saved, uh, yeah, I've I've kind of say I've saved it as a treat, and I'm actually going to watch it tomorrow. Also because I just love Imran so much, and I'm devastated that he's gone. And when they gave me that episode, I mean, honestly, when I was writing it, I I, I cried writing that episode <laughs> because I just think he's been such a brilliant character for us. Haven't he just? And I love, I love that we found so much light and shade in him. Mm. Um, that he's been an absolute hero, but he's such a flawed hero, and you still love him anyway. I mean, obviously it helps. He's got the face of an angel, <laughs> and <laughs> I mean, really, he's what he's got to be one of the most handsome men on British telly, isn't he? You're going to be making him blush because you know he's going to be watching this and listening uh, to. Well, it. no, but he is. Do you know the bizarre thing is? I've actually appeared phoned in another podcast a rival podcast not coronation street podcast because of uh, a scene i wrote with him yeah appeared referenced something i'd heard about on another podcast and then it became this really meta thing where the producers were saying they've stolen our ideas we owe we're <laughs> owed money by coronation street so i had to go on their page it's the john robbins and ellis john podcast on five live yeah and i had to go on their po podcast a week later and say it was homage i wasn't stealing your ideas but it was in a, it was a scene i wrote to charlie where he was singing when he was giving elsie breakfast so um but yeah yeah i just think he's been he's been so brilliant for us and a great ambassador for the show and everything yeah. and he and 
well, Georgia, we call her Claire, but Georgia have worked so brilliantly together. And, you know, I know she's going to miss him. Massively. Yeah, he, he is going to be very dearly missed by many, many of you and cast member, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. Was it funny um, writing a flashback? Because that isn't something that a, a device that Coronation Street often uses. It's really exciting when you get to do those things because it is it is playing around with the grammar of the show and we don't do it lightly. I mean, Ian MacDonald, uh, Mac, MacDonald Freudian slip, Ian McLeod. Sorry, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> um, uh, you know, he was on Emmerdale before us and they take a lot more risks with form and grammar, if you like, if you want to talk in technical terms. They've taken a lot more risks than Coronation Street has. And, and um, Ian is really good at knowing how far you can push things. He's just mm. got a really good instinct for how, how much we can play around with the kind of form of it. And so um, I think that week it did, it, it, it worked really well across that week. But um, yeah, it was just, it's just exciting. You know, to be able to kind of use a slightly different tool, if you like, or it's like stretching, stretching different muscles, really, because obviously, you know, most of us write on other things as well mm. to greater or lesser success, you know, whether it's like theatre or or other or other tally programmes. And, you know, we, we use those techniques on other shows, but on Curry, the form usually is very you know, you have to bridge things to allow characters to come in and we don't do jump cuts and things like that. So when you get a chance to do a special week like that, it does feel like a real treat. And it's always, it's always dead exciting when Big Doc comes along because we don't know until we open it who's been commissioned for what. Mm -hmm. And if you're like, oh, I'm in Super Soap Week. And even though you've been on the show all of these years, you're still like, oh, I'm on Super Soap. It's still really exciting to be one of the writers who've been picked. You know, it is a bit like being picked first for the footy team or something like that. <laughs> I'm sure you know that feeling, Michael. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. <laughs> um, now, going back to the Soap Awards, because um, the person who presented you with the awards there was Connor McIntyre, who we absolutely loved on Conversation Street as Pat Phelan. And you were, cred you were accredited as creating him, weren't you? How, how, I mean, tell me about that, because I'm a massive right. Pat Phelan fan. OK, well, it, there's two aspects to it, really. Um, at the time, I was pitching stories with Debbie Oates and Julie Jones and Carmel Morgan. I think we used to meet up and pitch stories. And I was having work done on the house at the time. We, we, and we used to, you're always like chatting to people, trying to, you're always thinking of stories, whoever you're talking to. And I was talking to our builder and he was saying, oh, you know, there's so many cowboys in this trade. They'll open up under one name, stiff someone for money move closed go bankrupt close the business down open up under another name and they're just like living sweet yeah so we needed to come up with a story for gary so um we came up with this cowboy builder and i called him pete Phelan because i've got a mate who's a pe teacher from manchester called pete Phelan. i thought it's a great name <laughs> anyway when it came through they said, oh, we can't have a Pete Phelan because, you know, we have to get the, the, the lawyers to check all the names and make sure we're not libeling people and this, that and the other. Slandering <laughs> people away. So they said, we can't have Pete Phelan, but we can have Pat Phelan. So anyway, we, we did this story and, and Pat Phelan was only ever going to be a short-term character in the show for, I can't even remember how many episodes, like maybe a month or a couple of months or yeah, something. Yeah, it wasn't much, was it? He, he stole, not, Owen, Owen stole his bike. And yeah. 
and that, and then, and then it was almost about it after the Gary broke. I, I wrote an episode where Gary broke into his house to steal stuff back and all this kind of thing. Yeah. And quite by chance, they cast Conor McIntyre, who Carmel Morgan, Debbie Oates and I had written for on um, a BBC Three comedy sh- series that Carmel had developed. That, oh, it was wow. Carmel's show called um, Drop Dead Gorgeous. And it was a comedy set in Runcorn, quite a gentle, like, family comedy. And Connor was playing just this lovely, warm, cuddly dad. But <laughs> obviously, with going and visiting the shoot and stuff, we got to know him, and he's got a really wicked sense of humour, and you knew there was a lot more to him than just playing a cuddly, warm, lovely dad. So when the very brilliant Jenny Ratcliffe cast him, we were like... Ah, brilliant this is going to be great and thinking it'd be great to bring him back and use him more and it was Peter Worley that actually came up with the really brilliant long-term story to bring him back when he would be a real buddy mm. and get Owen and Gary working for him and stitch them up and basically destroy Owen's business and break him down and humi- humiliate him and it was Peter Worley's idea so you know I, I helped invent the original, um, you know, Pat, Pat Feeling, but it was Peter that turned him into the supervillain that he then went on to become. Yeah, uh, yeah. as Conor McIntyre used to say in lots of interviews, he crossed the Rubicon and became a murderer, yes. didn't he? Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, and really, and, you know, there is a kind of, it is a dialogue or a kind of symbiosis that goes on between us. We'll watch performances and then think, you, know, you see a little spark there between a couple of characters or you see an actor do something, you think, hey, we could use that. That'll be really good. And with him, because there's so many layers to his performance, I think, you know, we gave him the torch and he just ran with it. And so we were always thinking, well, we can do this, we can do this. And we knew that we could just make it bigger and bigger and bigger. Yeah. And it became, you know, it was quite film at the end. I mean, it was uh, Owen, um, who, you know, our, our, our brilliant writing team who wrote those really big climactic episodes. And they would, I remember reading them and think this reads like a, like a film script. It was absolutely yeah. brilliant. Oh, I, I loved it. That was one of my, you know, one of my favourite eras of the show in the in the past couple of decades. I absolutely loved all the Phelan stuff. Absolutely did. Yeah. Um, are, are there any other characters other than a Phelan that you kind of think, that you 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 claim responsibility a little bit for for creating or or helping to develop anyone who's saying oh that's my character. Well, I I definitely can't claim that I created him, but I did write a lot for Jeff and Yasmin. Ah, another because, baddie. Uh, yeah, I know that's weird. I mean, it's not it's not like I only ever like baddies. I mean, I but I also love David Platt and he's had stages of being a buddy as well, hasn't he? Oh yeah. It just, it just so happened uh, that it was not our original story, but Jonathan and Harvey and I pitch a lot together and it sort of happened that we ended up pitching a lot for the Jeff and Yasmin coercive control, which had already been decided on as a story. But I think it was because my husband works for the CAB and he's done a lot of work with like women's aid and groups like that, who, you know, and, and, you know, spotting the signs of domestic violence and stuff. And, you know, I'd read quite a lot about it in the past. And I remember um, him telling me a story of a client that had come in and her husband had 
uh, one of the tasks he used to set up every day was he would he would take a paper clip and hide it somewhere around the house. And during the course of doing her cleaning for that day, she had to find the paperclip. And if she didn't find the paperclip, he knew that she hadn't cleaned that house properly that day. That's where, is that where the Red Cross came from. That's where the Red Cross came from. And Nick told me that story years ago. And you know when a story just lodges in your head and you yeah. can't shake it off. And so I think it was little bits like that. And we also had brilliant, like... Uh, Amy Coombs at the time who's now gone off to work on Waterloo Road she also from the story team I mean all the storyliners worked on it but Amy in particular did a lot of work with Women's Age with um, uh, with research for it and and we had you know brilliant researchers on it as well so it was it was a real team thing but it just so happened that Jonathan and I ended up writing a lot of the big seminal episodes for that didn't you? Uh, you wrote the episode where with the, with the bottle, didn't you? Where Yasmin yeah. goes for Jeff. Yeah, yeah, and that was brilliant to write, but also massive responsibility because obviously we had to get the research. You know, we we knew what we wanted to do that would give us the maximum drama for that episode, but we also had to be writing something that would allow us eventually to exonerate her in a court of law. Yeah. So that was really difficult to make sure that you were making a sat satis dramatically satisfying episode then, but you were still giving yourself, you weren't painting yourself into a corner where she'd just end up in prison for 25 yeah, years. Or another something. fantastic episode. Absolutely love that one. Now we, we must go soon, but um, before we do, I just wanted to ask whether you're kind of reflecting back over your past 25, 30 years on Coronation Street, how would you say that the process for you has changed and evolved over that time? Um, I, I don't even know if it has changed. I mean, I genuinely do still get excited when the episodes come through. Um, and in, in some ways, in many ways, it, it's got better because I think um, it just, I, it very much depends as well on who's producing the show. And we are in an absolute golden age at the moment. Uh, to have Ian McLeod and Verity McLeod mm. there as co-producers, they are they are brilliantly creative, endlessly hardworking, but they, I think, maybe because they both grew up with the show. Ian came in as a researcher, Verity came in as a script secretary, and they've worked their way up through the show, so they get the heritage, so they want to modernize and want to like stretch the envelope you know in terms of form and the kind of tone of stories that we want that we're telling but they also respect the history of the show and more than anything from our point of view they love the writers and defend the writers you know to the hilt um and so it feels like a real a great time to still be working on the show because they they really listen mm -hmm. they really listen. they have endless patience actually but they really do listen to what we want to say well, long may it continue because I mean Coronation Street is so lucky to have a writer like you on the team I've we, there's so, so many episodes that we haven't had a chance to talk about that, that you wrote uh, Alison Webster's death the minibus crash <laughs> boxing match Ken falling down oh, the stairs so I love many. the boxing match 
that that was actually that story I got from my decorator. Who <laughs> 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 was he? He was doing a white collar boxing um, thing, and he was he's only like this big. He just about comes up to my shoulder, yeah. and he was just approaching his fiftieth birthday, and he really wanted to do it. And I actually pitched that story to Phil Collinson, and Phil didn't like it. And so we sometimes will put these. Phil loved loads of other stories, but that one he didn't like. So we will sometimes put them in a bottom drawer and bring them out again. And yeah, I love that story. <laughs> it's so good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today, Jan. I mean, we, we I could talk for ages. I might have to invite you back sometime to, to you know, go through the rest of my questions. I've absolutely loved being able to uh, hear about your work on Corrie this evening. Thank you so much. I'm sorry I couldn't wear orange in tribute, but I didn't have anything in my wardrobe. So don't worry. You've got an orange water bottle there, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Cheers to Conversation Street. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you so much. So, uh, oh, goodbye for now. See you. Okay. Good luck. Thank you. And there you have it, Jan McMurray. Oh, she's lovely. She's Wonderful. so, so, so nice. I mean, so clever. Yeah, very, very talkative as well. I, well, I, which that's what I we love. Like. We like that on a podcast. Yeah, when we when we finished the interview, Jan was saying, oh, I'm sorry, I go, I, I go no. on. It's like, no, that's exactly what we want. And that's like, I hope what the listeners um, enjoy as well. Yeah. But, um, we, we could have talked for, for ages. We, we had to end it. For, we had to have our tea. We had to watch Coronation Street. Um, so uh, I, I, I really hope that one day we can get Jan. Um, back on the podcast again because um, she has many a story to tell yes indeed yeah um everybody thank you very much for listening to it i i, I hope you enjoyed it let, let us know let jan know yeah jan. pick I, her up i don't know she's not on twitter she's on she's, she's on Instagram, very wise though. not to be on twitter she, yeah i mean i don't Twitter's know what you mean. It, can, it can no be. offense twitter <laughs> we're on twitter you we're know. part of it you know if you've been there <laughs> but um yeah i i'm instagram's no, I'm always, much nicer isn't it instagram is lovely yeah so i will for one be certainly looking out for her name appearing on the credits of upcoming cory episodes it looks like she does you know between 10 and 20 episodes a year or so so it's a bit of a, a unique one when she comes but it's like i'll always recognize it Whenever it pops yeah, up on the exactly. screen, I said I chatted with her, and she was lovely. Yeah. And Scouse, I do love, I do love a Scouse accent, don't I? You do. You I, like well, you like all kinds of accents. I do, I do. But I think there's one you don't like. I like lots of accents, but I do have a particular fondness for Liverpool. I have to say so. It was an absolute pleasure to listen to her dulcet tones for for nearly an hour so, yesterday. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, that is it. Thank you so much again. Jan Ferry thank coming you, on Jan. the podcast yeah. and sharing your information and insights with us mm-hmm. and thank you everybody for listening and uh, we'll see you later on yeah see you in a couple oh. of days for our main podcast of the week what do we think who knows bye bye the music for this episode came from podcastthemes.com bye <laughs>